This is the Trip Doctor Podcast. I'm Arizona State University tourism professor Evan Jordan. If you're interested in learning more about being an intelligent traveler, head over to the website at gotripdoctor.com where you can find travel planning resources, a blog about all things travel, and a traveler personality quiz. You have an incredible number of options at your fingertips when you decide to travel. From individual businesses to meta search engines, experiences vary widely. Companies like Airbnb and others have made it easier to find smaller, family-owned businesses that provide unique tourism experiences, but they can still sometimes be hard to come by. My guest today is Dr. Duarte Moraes. Duarte is an associate professor at North Carolina State University. He's been conducting research on the intersection of tourism and micro-entrepreneurship as a method to empower small businesses in the tourism segment for the last several years. He's created a unique solution to the lack of access to tourism experiences provided by small and family businesses by providing an organization that partners business and research called People First Tourism. While the organization allows him to study the phenomenon of tourism micro-entrepreneurship, it also serves another purpose. Yep, yep. So it is pretty unusual in the sense that it is a, it's a research lab and it's also a company, uh, a social venture. So the company side has the goal to you know make profit, but also create desirable impact. In this case, to enable local people to make income from tourism. Okay, so I, I want to get started by talking about you as a traveler, Duarte, and your your travel experience, everybody's travel experience is unique. Um, you have the unique experience of being a professor in the United States, but you're from Portugal, correct? That's right. And so I'm just interested in your own personal travel experiences. How does How is it living in, an, in a country that's not your home country? Um, being a professor in a country that's not your home country, and what are your travel experiences like throughout your lifetime? Well, um, I am uh, an avid traveler. I really draw a lot of uh, joy from life, uh, from traveling, because I am, you know, living in diaspora, living away from home. Uh, a lot of that travel is heading back home, so a way for me to stay connected with who I am is through travel back to Portugal. And um, a lot of the way in which I tried to connect my American wife and my confused kids, uh, they're now teenagers. Uh, the way I go about trying to connect them to their Portuguese heritage is through visiting Portugal and other areas around Portugal in Europe and Morocco. And so in a way, you know, like the, the Duarte that I am today and the family that we are, is largely defined by our travel. Um, so that, you know, I refer to my Portuguese heritage, but, you know, as we live abroad, we also become kind of in between people where I'm not really Portuguese 100% anymore. And um, I am not really American either. But so I also experience my 
you know, American immigrant identity through travel. And um, <clears throat> we, we spent about a month uh, with our, in our van, uh, living the van life each summer, my kids and my wife and I. And uh, we love nature, so we, are, we usually travel west, you know, through North Carolina, experiencing the mountains here, and then on through across the plains and into the mountains of the Rockies. And we meet with people there, people we know, new people. Uh, we camp in public lands and meet the other folks that are also there, you know, devoting their free time to be in nature. So that's uh, how we, you know, other than just weekend trips in North Carolina, that's how we celebrate and um, exercise our, you know, American um, tree hugger <laughs> identity, you know, and how we try to instill it in our kids, you know, to have all these, you know, uh, wonderful experiences and experiences in the great outdoors in the U.S., especially in the western part. That's such a cool way of, of seeing the country. And I feel like that's an area of tourism that is really growing. You know, people who are hopping in a van for a month or multiple months out of the year and driving around the country. So I'm just curious, where is your favorite place that you've gone living the van life? You know, we, um, we like to go out west. And the primary reason is that the weather here in the summer is pretty hot and humid and uh, it is very beautiful both the beach and the mountains but it's a little harder to live the van life in these areas because of you know the airflow in the van and just comfort level away from air conditioning and if people come and enjoy north carolina in the summer it's best to like get a cabin in the mountains or a beach house at the coast and get outside and enjoy it and then come back to the comfort but if you're living in a van, that becomes a little harder. But out west, it's so pleasant to just wander about. You know, we in a month, we might do just one night or two of paid lodging. And the rest, we're just camping in, in free public lands. Because out west, there's a lot of public land where you can camp, dispersed camping. And uh, the nights are cool, so you can have nice, comfortable nights. There's not a lot of mosquitoes, so you can be unworried about that. And so in general, we go like between Colorado and Idaho. And then, you know, every year we seem to be getting more and more discerning about where to go. This past summer, we were in Idaho and we absolutely fell in love with Idaho. We probably wouldn't be able to deal with the long, cold winters, but to spend vacation there in the summer, it just seemed to be unmatchable. There's so many places to camp there's not a lot of visitors so the locals are still really really curious about us and uh you know there's a lot of uh, public dispersed hot springs and i'm from a hot springs city in portugal and so that's a huge deal and you know to be camping and then hike a half hour to a hot spring and move the rocks so that the right amount of cold water from the stream comes onto the hot water from the hot springs to regulate the water and learn that from the locals that are, you know, there all the time. It is just incredible. Uh, we really, really loved the back country of uh, Idaho. So what kind of what kind of van are you? Is this like a an RV or is this just like a big camper van? Or I, I just am wondering you have. So you said you have a wife and two kids. So there's four of you. How do you how do you fit? We have a 
uh, kind of like a FedEx van. It's a Sprinter, a Mercedes Sprinter. And um, because we like the outdoors, it's a 4x4. They're not very common, but uh, it's the perfect fit for us. We have a platform bed in the back, and uh, my son likes to sleep in the roof. We have a nice platform roof rack and likes to sleep up there just to be a little bit crazier than the rest of the family. And uh, we can share the, the bed in the back, and uh, even our dog fits with us in the van. And uh, we have, uh, you know, like a kitchen counter from our rafting equipment, uh, kind of a tall, narrow, uh, sturdy uh, table that we fold out. And we have camp stoves and uh, we just have a pretty comfortable way of cooking. Um, And we seldom go to restaurants to save money and to just live a little healthier. So we cook when we camp and have a really nice cooler. So we have fresh lunch, you know. And uh, live a pretty healthy and low-cost life. And that's really the spirit of, of van life, you know, it's to just get a box on wheels and make it work for you and um, kind of be uh, independent from the tourism infrastructure. So you can go grocery and buy buy the food that the locals buy and, um, and just kind of wander about and... We do, we're, I guess, you know, if we get a little nerdy and get into the type of travelers, tourists from Cohen's typology from a long time ago, we are kind of somewhere between explorers and drifters because we are curious about the local culture, the local ways. Nothing moves us more than interacting, you know, telling stories and listening to stories with locals. Um, So we are trying to really connect with the authentic uh, local way of life. Um, but it, it is also a lot about us, about us as a family. And, you know, I work um, on public libraries and coffee shops where there's Wi-Fi, keeping up with my grad students and working on writing. And I also just read a lot. To, it's the time that I get to catch up. So it's kind of a, a time to kind of get reconnected with with uh, what we think is the meaning of life, you know, and where we want to go with our careers and our thinking and our kids and our family. It's such an incredibly cool, like family type of, of trip um, that I think gives a, sounds like a really unique experience for your kids and, and you and your wife as well. So I just, I'm wondering what, what's a, you said you're becoming more discerning. So what is the mm-hmm. next the next place on your list? Are you like so in love with Idaho that you're going to go back or is there a new place that you're thinking is going to be the next spot? Yeah, um, what left us pondering a little bit uh, at the end of this year was that it just kind of worked out for us to spend like three days in Western North Carolina and then hurry across the plains and then we spend two or three days in the front range of Colorado and then we spend two or three days and uh, near Jackson Hole, near the Snake River. And that kind of format actually felt really good. We didn't really intend it uh, specifically like that, but the idea of going somewhere and then spending two or three days finding a place to camp and just stay there and do little side trips to run rivers and hikes, it just kind of made us be less always on the move, you know, and it, it allowed us to like claim a site and then have that as a home base. We did like five days in in, uh, Buena Vista, Colorado, and some folks from uh, North Carolina were swinging around through the national parks and met us there. 
and some other folks from Front Range came and you know met us there. So I think that's one thing we're doing different this summer is we're going to plan it a little bit more with these tentative home bases in Colorado and in Idaho and in Wyoming, and then let friends know that we're going to be in that area and um, and see how that feels. And um, so uh, we also are knowing a little bit better where to go and what to avoid in terms of like there's some places where there's no infrastructure, but there's a lot of visitors. And so then the, the quality of the environment is hurting a little bit because there's no bathrooms so people go into the woods and you can kind of feel like that place is a little bit uh, over carrying capacity Um, so we will know to avoid we already know to avoid those kinds of places and we know other places that are kind of a little bit less discovered a little bit more off the beaten path even um, less known by people like us You, you know we try to be I guess a little step ahead of um, all the other visitors and van lifers. So it's a little bit of a, of a game. So, yeah, so those, those two aspects, you know, to um, structure three or four days in a, a reduced number of places and do side trips during that time. And then the other is to kind of avoid the places that we know there's a lot of competition to, to the campsites and things like that. Well, and that's the benefit of being mobile, right, is you can decide one summer you're going to do it, do it that way, and the next summer maybe you choose to do it a different way. So very cool that you're able to, to do that. I want to um, transition a little bit and talk a little bit about your research as a tourism researcher. So you've been tourism, doing tourism research for quite some time, and you've done research on a lot of topics, um, most recently it seems like you've been doing a lot of work on tourism and micro-entrepreneurship. But before we get into that, I'm just curious. Everybody has their own path to becoming a tourism researcher. And I just wonder, how did you start going to school and say, I want to I want to be a tourism professor? Or is it something that you kind of grew into as you gain more experience? Because it seems like everybody's different. Yeah, yeah. Um you know, I, I do um, find myself kind of relating that story periodically. And it's it's been interesting because as I think through and try to figure out how I got to where I am, um, I get to kind of a more crystal. I, I kind of realize actually that um, I haven't really changed that much from when I was a teenager. So um the, the short of it is that I'm from the north of Portugal. My home province is called Trás-os-Montes. It means behind the mountains. So we're like from the, the Appalachia of Portugal, you know, kind of like the mountain people from this, you know, tall and skinny country. And, um, you know, I was clearly a, a mountain guy. I remember going to Lisbon for college and... Um, People kind of noticed my accent and made a little fun of my northern mountain accent. And so I've always been kind of uh, uh, living a little bit of the feeling of being the subaltern, to being kind of from a region that is peripheral, that is kind of what we now would call, you know, I start to, now we might call the pleasure periphery or the the rural pleasure periphery, you know. And um, so that's one facet of who I am. Another is that um, 
uh, my family and I, we have um, a farm with uh, six rooms to rent. And I grew up in that farm talking to tourists. And our farm is like the top rural lodging place in that province. It's very charismatic. It's from the uh, 17th century. And uh, my, my brother now is the manager of that company. And he's also a permaculture farmer and the chef in the farm and uh, the wine, the wine guy as well. And so I've, I was born and raised in tourism in a rural area where the economy is a little depressed and people come to learn about our genuine mountain culture and try the food and listen to stories. And I was, you know, by the fireplace um, talking with foreign tourists, explaining them who I was and, what my culture was like and what we did in that area. So from the onset, you know, the, the, the profit part of the sustainability, you know, uh, combination of people, planet and profit, the profit part was really, really crucial. My first concern with going to college was to learn management and business. And I did a, an undergrad in uh, recreation management in Portugal and Lisbon. And, uh, and then I came to the U.S. for a master's and I was looking at MBAs and stuff, but I ended up with a sports and recreation uh, management um, master's degree. And then at Clemson, I did my research on marketing with Sheila Backman in relationship marketing. And my focus there was to make more revenue from your current customers. So that was all entrepreneurship and management and marketing was always a strong thing, just as was, you know, making sure that tourism was a way for a region like mine to showcase its best and to, you know, pump up young people like me, like my brother who went back and now is living off of tourism in his hometown and, and basically stand up or fuel um, an equitable and sustainable economy. Um, so that's really uh, my path, you know, the little nuance is that, you know, there was a little bit of a transition and a kind of a, a back, back and forth, a back and forth um, in my uh, academic focus, you know, through my master's and PhD, my research and focus was on tourism marketing. But then I had um, um, a class, the kind of critical aspects of tourism with my advisor's husband and also in my committee, Ken Backman. And um, Ken Backman spent the semester with me and a handful of other grad students looking at the shortcomings of tourism, you know, how our industry systematically fails to deliver on the promise to generate equity and sustainability in the host destinations. And so it was with... Um, with a lot of ambivalence that I kind of, you know, graduated from Clemson. They're like, okay, now I know tourism marketing, but I also know that, you know, it's our obligation to identify the shortcomings. And so I really didn't feel comfortable just uh, continuing to invest on, you know, finding ways to grow tourism or to make tourism businesses more and destinations more successful. I also needed to look at especially sociocultural impacts certainly also ecological, since I'm a tree hugger, um, and, all, and all three are connected. But, uh, you know, um, that's, that characterizes who I am now as well, and my scholarship as well. You know, some papers were about tourism marketing, and some of them are the most cited, and that kind of 
makes me a little bit uncomfortable, to be honest. Um, but, you know, shortly upon graduating, I was investing in doing research sometimes with zero budget on a shoestring, but whatever it took, I wanted to do research that was critical of tourism, that was documenting its shortcomings and its nefarious impacts on host communities. Um, and so, yeah, um, that's why I'm kind of in, in these clear, um, I try to walk the line uh, uh, that, that encompasses those two things, both kind of the business sense of tourism for destinations and businesses, but also, um, you know, a very critical approach and being very, very um, piercing in the way I see how the industry interacts with communities. Yeah, I mean, certainly those two things are both phenomenally important for us as researchers to try and understand. So, you know, I commend you for for taking that approach with your research. I just I found myself wondering, was it your intention to go back and like run the family business and then you sort of just really enjoyed doing research and stuck around or, or what happened? It's that's something that I, I struggle, you know, to look back and put a finger on. I know that the main driver to come to grad school here was adventure. You know, uh, my friends were who I love and keep in touch now through social media. They were kind of following kind of more of a standard path of graduating, getting a job, getting a little apartment, a fuel efficient European car. And um you know, and playing soccer with friends on Sunday morning. And that all seemed not for me. You know, I wanted to, I had traveled around Europe already and, and vacation stuff. And I was just too curious, too restless and just hungry for, you know, um, I guess to, to keep rediscovering who I am and what I meant to be. I was just not settled. And so you know, between I actually had a internship in a local company in Lisbon and I uh, was excited to be there and I had to quit to come to the U.S. And they, you know, and my brother, that's the path he took. He worked in Lisbon for a while and like full on formal sector in tourism, one of the biggest resorts, and then, you know, went back home. And I that could have been me. You know, I'm sure that most people living in the diaspora kind of wonder uh, what life would have been if they hadn't taken that leap, you know, and take a a long flight over, you know, to these to the new world, to the new country. Um, but yeah, so uh, at some point, you know, through grad school, I had uh, moving from the masters to the PhD it was a really easy decision. I I was in a small school, Bowling Green in Ohio, and the teachers just loved having these Portuguese nerd with them. They were learning about my culture and they embraced me. They didn't have a PhD program at the time. So I was their golden child and I, I didn't have any distractions, you know, didn't have family reunions or holidays or girlfriends. So I just took it up and really, really loved, you know, became, that's when I really became, you know, hungry for knowledge and kind of curious about becoming a scientist. I definitely didn't come to the U.S., with that kind of graduate student mentality, you know, I was just looking for an opportunity to, to leave the country, learn, you know, open my horizons in a financially viable way, you know. And so, uh, fortunately, in the U.S., you know, we have the chance to support grad students. And um, at the time, that time, the U.S. was a little bit more of a 
culture embracing you know the arrival of of other people with other ways of life and everybody was excited i felt welcomed so and then to go to to clemson it was an easy choice you know when i came to ohio i had no idea what america was i remember walking the streets those first few days and looking at all the big cars and i even took pictures of the mcdonald's sign in the street and mailed it home to my friends to brag about it you know that i lived close to a mcdonald's like we had seen on tv i was so unaware of the american culture and stuff and and then clemson i was able to visit it, the visit university the semester before so it was an easy move and it was a great fit for me so well it sounds like you're you're life experience and kind of your drive and thirst for knowledge has really informed your research in in being that critical piercing researcher you know focusing on marketing but also being critical of what are the things that we can do better as as an industry so you've done a lot of work recently on micro entrepreneurship and i'm just kind of interested in in your findings over the past several years looking in at this topic um you know what where do you think the direction like do you see micro entrepreneurship as being a solution to some of those problems you identified and you know how do you see it moving forward in the future yeah um all right so there are a few reasons why i believe that we as a as a academe as the tourism and our researchers really need to pay attention to micro entrepreneurship one of them i'll i'll take the liberty of kind of uh, reaching out to one of your publications when you uh, commented on uh, the two different outputs of planning exercises, one led by the formal sector, the government, consultants, and the industry, and one led by residents or, or participants. And you noted how um, the one led by the consultants and formal sector was very much unreservedly pro-growth, and the other one was more kind of um, uh, slow is slower is better, and let's focus on making the industry serve the community. And so, what I take from that 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 substantiates uh, the importance of tourism micro entrepreneurship is that if we tourism will serve all if all are involved in tourism, right? So, if tourism industry only involves the formal sector and then people take pictures of the locals from the, in the comfort of their buses, then the locals are not going to be involved or have any leverage on how tourism develops in their communities. But if we nurture a baseline of community involvement in tourism ownership through very small businesses, then those folks will feel emboldened and they feel like they really do belong in the tourism industry and they will the, the system will have no choice but to involve them in planning. Um, the other thread I, I would borrow from is some, you know, work that a lot of people have done, and in particular, I did one publication with um, with Gian from from your university, Gian Yopane. We were both at Penn State, and we blended data I collected in China with data that he collected in Nepal, and uh, we found that depending on the kind of tourist and the amount of tourist the local communities had uh, more or less ability or ease in kind of embracing the opportunities brought by tourism and resisting the challenges brought by tourism. And so <clears throat> 
if we folk, if we allow tourism to be tourism retail to be monopolized by formal retail systems like tour operators and hotels and the travel media, then the, they will generate the form of demand and the type of visitation that serves their purposes. But these new marketplaces that allow people like us, discerning travelers, the kind of traveler listener that might be you know, curious enough to listen to your um, podcast, you know, those kinds of travelers, they don't want to be in that trap. They don't want to be part of the nefarious process of this destination, you know, evolving and ever more into mass tourism, undistinguishable uh, destinations where the locals are resenting their presence. What travelers like you and I do and your listeners do is they do research and they try to use these web marketplaces that supposedly democratize access to them as visitors. So they will rent houses by local people, they will use local, you can even rent a car from a local person now and you can use Uber and, and Lyft and you can buy local experiences from my company, peoplefirsttourism.com and from Viable and from a myriad of other companies like We Hate Tourists Tours from Lisbon and Porto, you know? So more and more, <laughs> more and more, you get, actually, uh, I came across them in Portugal and I love it because, you know, um, they are right on, you know. So local, they are a company that really doesn't like mass tourism. And there's a lot of tourists that want to go with them because they don't want to be having a tourism experience. And so these uh, onslaught of, of discerning travelers, they don't like to be called tourists, so we'll call them travelers, um, is opening the possibility for communities to take hold of these economic force of the tourism monster, you know, and uh, in the destinations where that doesn't happen, where the government is too much in cahoots with the formal tourism industry, the unavoidable result is going to be over-tourism. And I'm sure that all of us know many examples of that. Barcelona is the, you know, the textbook example that's probably been written about already more than a decade ago and now there's a name for it uh, but in communities where local people are involved in hosting and showing around and telling stories uh, and even helping with transportation then a great part of the tourists are bypassing the formal sector and so the TDAs the tourism development authorities now are not just serving the hotels. They are also now serving the homeowners and residents who, by the way, are starting to also, those homeowners are paying taxes, occupancy tax as well. So the budget of the TDAs is being filled by many, 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 many residents, not just by a handful of hotels. And so the dynamic is changing, right? The way tourism occurs is changing. Now, my goal is that my scholarship accelerates that change and it allows us to really prepare communities and, and enable them to harness that, that, that trend and that opportunity. And uh, if I may, I'm going to give you one more line to consider, one more line of research that I've, I've pursued with, with you know, friends and colleagues for a while. And that, that is um, the ability of the local people to speak through tourism. Um, there was some early, early, early work from like Brunner, for example, on how the local people in like slave tourism destinations in Africa, how they were retelling their history to fit the market, etc. And then we did, we've done a lot of work on the politics of uh, 
destination representation. And, um, you know, we found that depending on who's creating the brochure, you know, the, the destinations are being portrayed in slightly different ways. And if it's the formal industry, then the images used, et cetera, are to design and select it and sometimes even edit it um, to fit what the industry thinks that the tourist wants to see. Poverty, authenticity, you know, those kinds of things. But if it's the locals, the local people involved in, in speaking to, to their potential visitors, then they are building uh, images that are a little bit more aligned with what they want to do and what they want to say. The locals are choosing which aspects of their histories and their identities are suitable for consumption. And so we've pursued a lot of that work. And, you know, recently we're even using like virtual reality and image and visual methods to um, to engage local people and and selecting which images they want to use in tourism promotions because the representation of destinations shapes the reality of those destinations. If, if somebody else is, is describing your community, then all of these hordes of tourists are going to come with that expectation. And the local people, if they want to make any money from tourists, they're going to have to comply with those expectations. But if the locals are involved in making that selection of which things are private, which things are that they're proud of, you know, then the tourists are going to come with those kinds of questions. And the locals are really, really well aligned to, to build their livelihoods on, on tourism services. So it's kind of like the, the branding and promotion is a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If, if it's portrayed that way, that's what it will become. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's the paradox, right? And if we study marketing, we're getting it backwards, you know, like we really need to look at who is developing the product. The product should be the locals because they are the product. So this, this, well, these areas of research, because there's multiple that are all threaded together in a very complex way, has led you to create an organization that you mentioned earlier called People First Tourism, which I think it does some really cool things. So can you tell us about that organization and how it came to be and and what it is? Yeah, yeah. So it is pretty unusual in the sense that it is a, it's a research lab and it's also a company, uh, a social venture. So the company side has the goal to, you know, make profit, but also create desirable impact. In this case, to enable local people to make income from tourism. And then that company supports the lab. Um, the reason, so that lab is also somewhat unique in the sense that, you know, we have, we started a lab, B1T lab uh, here at NC State, but now there's, um, other labs emerging in other states and in other countries. And um, uh, we are basically devoted to conducting research about microentrepreneurship, about how microentrepreneurship can be enabled and how it impacts uh, the host communities. And perhaps, you know, some folks maybe related to this could study the, how the market reacts to microentrepreneurs. Why would they, why would the tourists be interested in microentrepreneurship? But honestly, what we focus on is on the microentrepreneurs themselves um, because they are hard to study. Often they are in the margins of the formal sector, so it may be hard to 
to get a sample of 500 of them. You know, uh, we actually found some of these databases, but it's not easy because they some of them are not very very visible. So we developed um, methodologies that are appropriate to these population. One of the things that uh, we do is that we have that company that supports us. So the people we study, they are uh, allowed to be in this marketplace to sell tourism experiences. That way, you know, we are benefiting um, from studying them, from collecting data with them. Uh, and in what way would they benefit directly from that work? Maybe they they get a little bit more clear clarity on what they want to do with their lives and they maybe become emboldened because they interact with us, the professors and the students. And we have actually documented that that's the case. But in addition, you know, these people usually have vulnerable livelihoods. They might be doing somewhat well, but they are maybe one or two crises away from losing their farm or going into, you know, uh, welfare or having to drop down to, uh, some of the social safety services that, you know, we have in the U.S. and in other countries. So they are kind of struggling tourism entrepreneurs, very, very small businesses. So for that purpose, it seemed kind of necessary for us to keep things equitable that, you know, if we're benefiting from them to publish and, and advance uh, our science, then they should benefit in the short ter term as well. So we do our very best to get them connected to visitors. And so I am kind of a current CEO of that company and the founders uh, the, at my university, NC State is a minority owner of the company and they host us in a nice corporate office, et cetera. And we are completely, completely devoted to getting business, you know, to attract tourists, to come and visit farms, visit artists, visit walking tours, entrepreneurs, the people that we basically interview and administer surveys to them, et cetera. But this way is kind of a, it's not a, an extractive, another form of exploiting these folks, uh, even if a little bit more subtle, you know, it still would be unbalanced. So this way we are 100% invested in their success and uh, helping them generate um, income. This type of organization, it seems like you very unique. Like, I don't, I don't know of any other organization that does something similar to this in any other academic discipline or industry, like having a company that's funding the research, that's organizing the people to be entrepreneurs. Like, it's just such a fantastic thing. Yeah, yeah. It's very uh, nonconformist. But, you know, the status quo is messed up. So we had to think outside the box and come up with something very different that that fit what we were thinking um we uh, we didn't have we don't have a lot of merit honestly to come to this point for a few reasons one of them is that i came here tenured and i came here saying i will come here if you allow me to be an engaged scholar a scholar that is not just um, devoted to describing these problems in ever more sophisticated ways, I want to come up with solutions, all right? And they hired me, and, you know, they will have a hard time firing me, you know? And NC State is the think-and-do institution. They're proud of these things. So I came knowing what I wanted to do, and I was given the, the resources and the freedom to do it. And uh, on top of it, NC State, apparently it's the university in the country that's best at spinning off 
companies out of the innovations of its faculty. And so they had a whole system set up for us to like trademark and register our trademark and lawyers to start the company and little grants to start companies. And they give us office space in downtown Raleigh. You know, so in any other place, it might have been very, very hard, you know, it would be an uphill battle and a big distraction from being productive with my scholarship. But here, you know, a lot of colleagues uh, understood the idea and were embracing it. And there's a cross campus uh, ecosystem uh, of innovation that and scholarship that just, you know, celebrates our work. We're interacting all the time with computer science classes that look at our software with public relations students that do internships in our company to help us with communications. The MBA program looks at what we do. You know, it's like there's this whole village behind my dementia. (laughs) It's so fantastic. So if the listeners are interested in taking part in People First Tourism or learning more about engaging with local people as tourists, what do they go to your website or what are the other resources that are available out there for them if they want to be more intelligent in this area? Yeah. So the, the central pitch is to just Google people first tourism and they will find, uh, you know, our communication platforms and the marketplace is peoplefirsttourism.com. And, um, I think they will find, especially in North Carolina, we have many experiences across the state, and then we also have them in partnership with these new P1T labs across the world um, that are also studying micro-entrepreneurs and registering them into this um, web marketplace. But um, we're definitely not um, the only actor out there. We were six years ago, you know, almost nobody was using Airbnb, etc. Now there's been a few platforms that have emerged and they're our competitors. Airbnb, a monster, right? It's huge. Um, it's, uh, it also sells trips. So what we do is very similar to trips, to Airbnb trips. Uh, but Viable is another really large uh, marketplace and um, Excursiopedia and Tours by Locals. I mean, the list is pretty extensive. And some of those marketplaces are owned by large tourism retailers like Travelocity and things like that. So there's a lot of integration on those. We would like to, I think I'm confident to claim that we're different from them in the sense that we have, you know, more genuine uh, experiences because some of the stuff in those websites um, are, you know, make it look like it's uh, very unique, but in reality, it's kind of another Segway tour or another uh, pub trolley tour or things like that. But there are there are many also many interesting things like that in those websites. And then destinations themselves also have uh, companies, local companies that are kind of like us, but at the local level. Like I mentioned, uh, we hate tourists tours from they are from Lisbon, but they also have Porto. So whatever. Uh, your listeners go to, they should, you know, look this up. They can go to the big websites like TripAdvisor and search for local experiences and and just kind of really work hard at finding those kinds of things um, and not settle for whatever is in a brochure in the hotel lobby. And a lot of people are doing that. You know, they go even for a conference, but then they book a little half-day side trip with a local local micro-entrepreneur. 
Well, this has been fantastic and and fascinating. So I just want to say uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I very much appreciate it. It was a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you.